Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am delighted to be joined today by one of my favorite short story writers, Jamel Brinkley. He's the author of A Lucky Man Stories, which won the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence and was a finalist for a whole bunch of prizes, including the National Book Award. He was raised in the Bronx and in Brooklyn, New York, and he currently teaches at the Iowa Writers Workshop. His new story collection is called Witness. Welcome, Jamel. Thank you, Maris. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I'm always weary of trying to find too many connections in short story collections that, that link the work too, too rigidly. But the marketing copy for this book and a theme that we see in this book is about the act of witnessing something yeah. or seeing something and, and then how we react to what we've seen at right. all. Yeah. Were you working, were you writing this collection towards this theme or was it more like you looked at your body of work and you recognized that there was a thread? Yeah, I would, I would say somewhere in the middle, unlike a lucky man, which sort of, came together after I'd al I had already written a bunch of stories. And I sort of saw the connections between them after the fact. With this one, I didn't start with the notion of writing a collection built around the idea of witness, but I saw that as a unifying idea earlier than I did with A Lucky Man. So maybe a few stories in, I realized that's maybe what this project was, which was an interesting way to write. I tend to be a little nervous about having that kind of structure in place beforehand, because I, it, I, my fear is that it'll be a little limiting, that I won't have sort of the freedom to experiment and discover that I normally do. But I don't think that ended up being the case. Absolutely not. And I think you have a great page of epigraphs that kind of set set the scene a little bit. Yeah. Get us ready. Yes. Another thing that I, I was noticing in this book that, that seems to be a big theme is health and healthcare. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that. Yeah, I think I think I was thinking about that idea in a lot of different ways. I was thinking about it structurally, for sure. Thinking about medical racism, the way that, you know, African Americans are disproportionately mistreated, you know, in their medical care, especially African American women. Then I was thinking about it personally as well. Yeah. You know, you you start to get a little older and you start seeing people just going through stuff, yeah. you know, and it's, it's just part of the journey of life. Like people all of a sudden have afflictions. You have afflictions, whatever the case may be. And, you know, just starting to see that pop up, you know, in, in my social life, among my family and friends brought, brought that issue very close to home. So I kind of wanted to explore it. And it was important for me to have the structural and the personal in there, you know, like I didn't want to ignore the existence of, say, medical racism, but I didn't want the stories to be about medical racism. You know, right, I still want right, to right. focus as much as possible on the people and their relationships. And of course, so much of the collection is also about New York City, or at least yeah. it's set there, um, yeah. just like a lucky man. Tell me, yeah. tell me about that. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I often get the question, you know, because I haven't lived in New York for almost 10 years now. And, you know, I go back frequently to visit because my mom and brother still live there, but I haven't lived there in a while. I can't believe it's been almost a decade. And people always ask, well, why, why do you why do you still write about New York? Are you going to write about Iowa City? Are you going to mm -hmm. write about some of the other places you've lived, California, Madison? And for me, I, I think it's it's simple. I think I think New York is still home. It's still the place that, you know, it's the world that that I feel inside. It's the world that conjures up and that I my imagination responds to. Maybe that'll change. I feel like it may not. But but New York is still or a version of New York, you know, um, is is still what what feels really vital and um inspiring to me. Yeah. And and at the same time, and this is of course another big theme in the book, is it, just watching Brooklyn slowly and then very quickly become gentrified. Yeah. Yeah. There there were there were hints of that in a lucky man too. And obviously it's an ongoing thing. And I think it's 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 acute to me because like I said, I haven't lived in New York for, for quite a while. But you know, you go back a few times a year, and those like months-long intervals are long enough that when you go back, the changes really hit your eye in a striking way. You know, like these huge towers that pop up. I think there was a joke the other day I saw on Twitter about Sauron's tower in Brooklyn now. <laughs> you know, and it, so it, it really hits you. Um, whereas before, I think you know some of the changes feel like. You know, you have to look more closely to see what's going on. So those changes are very interesting to me and a little upsetting sometimes, but, sure. but fascinating nonetheless. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little broadly about the variety of points of view you, you write from in this work, both from, you know, different people of different backgrounds, but also, you know, first, second, third <laughs> person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the first thing I'll say is that, you know, with with a lucky man, for, for a number of reasons, I think, because of the book itself, obviously, the stories are focused on on Black men, but also the timing of the book's publication. I think that the narrative that quickly sort of solidified around the book was that this is a book about masculinity or Black masculinity or toxic masculinity or what, right. what have you. And I think there's a part of maybe any artist when you start to chafe against being boxed in like that. And I don't think people meant it in any sort of you know way. Sure. But there's a way in which you're like, I can, I can do more than that, or I'm not just that. And I do think that that book is more about is is that a lucky man covers more than just that topic. But with this book, I think I very intentionally wanted to write stories that that sort of pushed out of that. You know, so I do have point of view characters who are women or young women, old women, little girls. And yeah, and it was also fun for me to to write from from a variety of, of POVs, you know, so first person, different kinds of first person, you yeah. know, where the first person is sort of muted or hidden for a while, then it starts to emerge. I think I had a lot of fun with that. Just just doing like seeing what's possible within, you know, each of those POV choices, you know, to experiment within first person, for instance, was, was a lot of fun for me. 
I, I think that that really comes across in the collection. And now I'm going to ask you a, a very hack question that I know you can't quite answer, which is, I'm going to say that the language in this book is incredibly striking. I'm not going to just sit back and say like, how'd you do that? But I know you teach. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about prose and polishing and making unexpected word choices. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I think you want something as you're writing a story, as you're, as you're pursuing like a plot in a story or, you know, whatever the character's journey is, I think a story becomes dynamic when there are things within the story that aren't subservient to the plot. And they can happen on a lot of levels. Sometimes it can happen on a level of, say, dialogue. You know, like some of our best dialogue writers are people whose just the things that the characters say are so out there, but out there in a pleasurable way and way that you accept. And it feels like it, it kind of opens up the world of the story a little bit more. It doesn't feel like it's on the track to its destination yeah. so strictly. And so when you're talking about language, I think language is another way where if you tune the sentences in a certain way, you know, your choice of, of diction, the way you, you decide to work with the syntax, just the sentences themselves can be these little pleasures, you know, that kind of again, make you see more than just this is where this story is going. You're, you're sort of experiencing the story in this multi-sensory way. Like it's, the story is coming at you from many directions. That is a lovely answer. Before I start asking you about some specific stories, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the order in which the short stories appear. The title story is the final one. I'm always fascinated by this. Like, was it your choice? Was it an editor's mm -hmm. choice? All of that. Yeah, it's kind of a negotiation. I've, I've <laughs> had a negotiation with both of these collections so far. Um, I will say that, you know, generally speaking, the sort of pillars of the collection were in place kind of from the beginning, you know. So it makes sense for Blessed Deliverance to be the first story for a number of reasons, because of the, the voice, for instance. You know, that first sentence kind of like jumps out. Yes, out it of, sure does. Well, I hope it does. And then I think, you know, there's there's something about, I taught a class, I co-taught a class with my colleague Margot Libsey this spring, this past spring on short story collections. One of the things that we and the class thought about was the sequence. And it was really fun and interesting to to read different writers talking about sequence. And one of the things that I became fascinated with was the idea of notes. You know, like people will say, I want to end on this note, mm -hmm. right? Which when you hear it, it's just, you know, you kind of understand it on a surface level. But when you think about it in terms of music, then it becomes really interesting, right? Like, so what, what is the um, kind of sound journey that your collection is taking, right? And how do each of those sounds convey different kinds of emotions, you know? Um, and so for me, I, I think like the journey from that first story to that last story is, is sort of a, a journey from, you know, someone who, I mean, in some ways, the narrators are similar kinds of characters in certain kinds of ways, meaning they, they sort of embrace inaction, you know, for, for different reasons. But that first narrator really wants to be hidden, you know, and that's what the point of view choice kind of reflects. And then finally, we have this character who emerges 
at the end of the story. And I think by the time you get to the end of the collection, there's no way you can't stare at that narrator. You know, right. Right. From the beginning. right. You know, he's so visible, you know, even in his inaction and his, you know, neglect and his guilt, you know, all those things. Um, so I think that's part of it. But the stories in between, my editor, Jenna Johnson, and I were kind of going back and forth on, on where the stories could go. Fair enough. I, let's let's talk more about Blessed Deliverance because I did think that when I first started reading that story that this would be a collective narrator, a, a group of asshole teenagers, perhaps who'd who'd be who'd be telling a story, and then and then you really you dismantle that. I'm wondering. Yeah if maybe the best way to talk about this story is if you can talk about the convention of naming and the importance of naming and whose names we get to know both as characters and, and in the world. Yeah. Naming in that story is super important. Obviously it's important in terms of place, right. Which comes up in the story. We brought up the issue of gentrification earlier, and you know, places have these new real estate names, right? Dobro. Uh, yeah, Dobro, Dobro is really embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. Like I part, I partly grew up in the South Bronx, and when I heard it, it was called Sobro. <laughs> I nearly thought of my hair, you know. So stuff like that. So I, I wanted to talk about it on on that level. I also wanted to talk about it in terms of like nickname. The nicknames we give each other, which is something very common among friend groups, you know, especially very young people who have these nicknames. Um, or, you know, I think it's something pretty particular to African-American culture, too, where, you know, you can you can sort of call someone like the, the part will name the whole, you know, like someone will someone is wearing like a, a weird someone's doing a dance with their shoulders and all of a sudden their nickname is shoulders, you know, something like that. Right. <laughs> and so. And so the, the name of the, the, the sort of unhoused person in the story, um, his nickname is, is Headass, right? That's what all the locals call him, all the, all the people from the neighborhood. Um, and there's sort of an offense taken when he's renamed by like these gentrifier figures, right? But I, 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 so I wanted to show that as an offense, but also as a way to open up the idea of, well, why do you call him this other name, right? Um, then the third thing I'll say about naming, it's such a cool question. The third thing I'll say about naming is that we do get to know the names of everyone in the friend group, except for the narrator, right? And we know what the unhoused character, we know his, we know two of his, we know his nickname and we know his incorrect name, right? And one thing that I kind of like in, in stories, and you see this in sometimes in old novels, like I was teaching Middlemarch last year, and I noticed there's a part in Middlemarch where George Eliot kind of draws a curtain around a couple of characters. And even though the story is omniscient, there's something that the omniscience does not have access to or doesn't grant the reader access to. And I kind of love that. I kind of love sort of granting the characters that, that dignity, that privacy, where you don't get to know everything, reader. And so for, for me, the end of the story without, you know, giving the entire thing away is that at the end of the story, there is this secret shared. The real names are shared, but it's only between those two characters. The reader does not get to know 
right? And I hope that it says something about those two characters and the bond that they're maybe starting to form, that they have this secret that belongs only to them. Yeah, that's lovely. And and, and I'm I'm thinking a lot about the story Comfort um, when we're talking about what the reader knows versus what the narrator knows or other characters know. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how much to reveal when in that story, because it's a tragic story that gets kind of more and more tragic as it goes along. Yeah. The more we learn. That story was inspired by a William Trevor story called A Day. And that story is mainly about a love affair. (laughs) the, the, The hidden story is this: there's this love affair that's been going on. But I love the structure of that story. I love that it basically the present story is just an ordinary day and that you get this sort of slow drip of the tragedy that's informing the day as you move through the story. But what I wanted to do was, was not to make it about something like a love affair. I wanted to bring in you know, one of these big issues that we talked about. We talked about medical racism before. And so for this story, it was, I wanted to, to talk about police violence. You know, and of course, the way that it informs the relationship between these siblings. And so with that story, I, I kind of wanted to, to really stay, the, the challenge of the story was staying fixed on the sort of mundane action of the day, right? Because the more, quote unquote, interesting stuff has all happened in the past, right? And so there's a way in which narrative is more interested in that, <laughs> right? But... The, the challenge of the story is, well, how do I stay fixed on this day without it becoming boring, <laughs> you know, and allowing the stuff that narrative is typically interested in to start to seep into the story without losing a reader's interest, you know? And so for me, it's it's really about getting the texture, the texture of that, uh, where she lives, um, the texture of her pain, you know, which is not entirely pain. She does have these little sources of joy in her life too you know, or pleasure at least, and saying fixed on those, so like the fine details, the fruit, the supermarket, you know, what she eats and doesn't eat, what she drinks, her her landlady, her friend, like all these things I have to really make as, as solid as possible. And if those things are rendered, rendered solidly, then I can kind of like start to sneak in all the information that a reader really wants to know, like what's going on with this woman. I love that. And and I do think this story in particular is is really a great model for the idea that some some reactions are uncalled for and some interventions are uncalled for and thinking about what exactly Simone wants or needs or if she's able to determine that. Right. No, I think that's true. I mean, one of the vexing questions about whenever someone you care about is in pain, whether it's because of medical reasons or otherwise, is how do you care for them? Yeah. You know, and there are ways that we try to impose our care on people, you know, and it's hard to know. It's hard. Sometimes you feel like, well, I, if I don't do anything, you're, you're lost. So it's a really difficult question. And I, and I want the difficulty of that question to, to stay active. You know, that it is difficult. And while you don't want to impose, it's also kind of a 
potential failure to sort of sit back and just let things happen. You know, so I think it's a really thorny human question, and I kind of wanted the story to to live fully into the how complex that is, you know? Yeah. Please tell me a little bit about writing from the perspective of an eight-year-old girl in yeah. The Happiest House on Union Street, which is a delight. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with that story. I think what I wanted to tap into was just a sense of, of wonder, you know, and the sense that, you know, children, young children, no matter how young they are, no matter how, quote unquote, innocent we may think children are, they're quite observant, mm -hmm. feel very complex feelings. And I wanted to capture that combination of observation and strong feeling, this character, right, who is full of love for both her father and her uncle, and has these sort of special relationships with each of them. So much so that basically they're her parents, the two of them are yeah. her parents, you know. And so I kind of wanted to really capture that and never condescend to her, you know, to sort of capture her, her wonder, the way that she sort of sees the world in a unique way based on where she is in her life, but never to condescend her, never to treat her like she's lesser or stupid or, or not a fully complex human being, you know. But that story was, was a lot of fun for me to write. I had a lot of fun doing it, you know. And the challenge of it was, you know, because something very serious is going on. Like, you know, when you zoom out, it's like, okay, this house is going to be lost. It is lost. It's, it's imminently lost, you know. And I was reading a lot of articles in the New York Times about deed theft, um, story and again this is something that's disproportionately affecting african-american families especially in you know new places like new york and i was like you know how do you write how do you write a story about deed theft in a way that is about the people it's about the family the people who are in the home who are about to lose the home and the character that i settled on was was this little girl well i love her Let's talk a little bit about the the title story because it yeah. seems like it's it's basically the story of a woman named Bernice and the choices she makes, but yeah. it's told from her brother's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, I, I I'm thinking a lot about, you know, this is the title story and you mentioned the epigraphs earlier. One of them comes from, the first one is from James Baldwin, right? This idea that the line between um, being a witness and being an actor is, is very thin, but it's, it's a real line, right? And so just thinking about this issue of, one, seeing what you need to see versus seeing what you want to see, right? And then once you see what you need to see what you do, how you act, mm. you act, right? Really crucial questions. And I think, you know, I didn't include this, but, but Baldwin has another essay. It's the beginning of an essay called This Nettle Danger. At the beginning of that essay, he talks about the fact that most people don't want to be true witnesses to their own experience. Because if you are a true witness to your own experience, then it basically um, it amounts to an assault on on your self-image, you know, 
And so what he says basically is that people are, most people are content to live on the surface of things mm -hmm. right? with their own kind of created self-image. But what happens when you really push into the depths of your experience? And that's what I think that story is, is, is about. I don't think a lot of those stories are about that. But this idea of the brother being the, the narrative consciousness of the story, right? Living in the same apartment, right? Small apartment. It's very small. Small apartment, <laughs> right? Pressing those characters together. Mm -hmm. The brother having sort of the audacity to feel beset by by the sister who was so kindly yeah. stay in the apartment right um and at the same time as as the medical professionals are kind of ignoring her pain the brother is sort of doing a version of the same thing right i don't want to conflate them because I, sure. I think the racism and the brother's reaction are, are sort of two different things but there is a way in which you know this woman's pain is is not being adequately attended to by anyone, you know, and so I think I think by having the brother be the narrative consciousness, we're we're able to see Bernice and her decisions. Some of the comedy comes out of the story, I think, because of the brother's perspective, right? But that that comedy, I think, quickly gives way to to tragedy and pain. Um, yeah. Yes. If, if Bernice was telling the story, I wonder how she would describe her DJ husband. Um, yeah. But, but you get a lot of good laughs out of that. Yeah, I think so. And I hope, I hope that even though she's not telling the story, you know, I always talk to my students about, you know, even if you have someone in the story who's not controlling the story, you want, you want these other characters to puncture that narrative. To make it more complex, you know, uh, the brother's telling the story, but he doesn't control Bernice. Bernice has her own autonomy as a character. Mm -hmm. so Got to remember that and sort of let her have her say. And I hope that a lot of the lines that ring most true in the story are hers. For sure. Well, Jamel, thank you so much. Before before I let you go, will you please recommend some books for us? Sure, I'm happy to recommend some books. One of the first places I like to go when I recommend books is, are Edward P. Jones's two short story collections, which I love and supply me with courage all the time. So Lost in the City is his first collection and All Aunt Hagar's Children would be the second one. So I would strongly recommend those books. I've kind of been obsessed with The Transit of Venus by Shirley Hazard lately. That is sort of an incredible achievement. It took her 10 years to write it, I believe. It's it's an incredible novel. It's so it's so thin and yet <laughs> Yes, the, the world is enormous. It's, enormous it's world. Incredible. Yeah. And and talk about striking language. You know, we were talking about that earlier. That the prose in that book is is unbelievable. So, so good. The last book I would recommend, I guess, would be Hue and Cry by James Allen McPherson, another short story collection. McPherson was one of Edward P. Jones's teachers at the University of Virginia, actually. Wow. And also, as people probably know, the first African-American winner of the Pulitzer Prize in fiction. So those are some books that I would recommend. Thank you so much, Jamel. And uh, Witness is out now. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.